Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good Physics Day, everyone. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a national conversation right now. And rightfully so. This is something that certainly in our nation and across the world, we've needed to have these conversations. We've needed to stand up and recognize the inequities around us. And it's finally happening. It's a national conversation and it's, an, it's a conversation that is embedded in education right now as well at all K through 12 levels and at the college level. There are so many more trainings around this. There are so many more workshops. The AAPT conference this, this past year and recently has had many talks and conversation and speakers looking at this topic. Now more than ever, I am much more aware of my white privilege, the advantages that I've had that other people have not had. But what do we do with this information? There may be more awareness, but how does that impact our teaching? What do we do differently in the classroom now? And how can we help to impact our students? How can we raise awareness for our students in this conversation that we may feel incredibly unskilled at? We may have been trained as a physicist, as a chemist, as a biologist. That is what we know how to bring into the classroom, and we're still learning how to bring that into the classroom more effectively. But how do we approach this conversation that makes many of us uncomfortable, that we are still just grappling with understanding ourselves? So I was so pleased today to be able to talk to some individuals from the underrepresentation curriculum. This is a flexible curriculum designed to help students critically examine scientific fields and take action for equity, inclusion, and justice. There is a curriculum that is out there for us in science that we can bring into the classroom. If we have just 20 minutes to spare, or if we have eight days that we can spend on it, and anywhere in between, there is a curriculum that is there to help us, to be able to guide us, to help us think about what the thorny issues are, to help us to understand ourselves better, and to help students and us wrestle with the data that is out there. What is the data that is showing us that diversity, equity, and inclusion, these conversations are so important? What's the data there? And then how can we act on that? So I am so happy to speak with two of the editors from the underrepresentation curriculum, Angela Flynn and Moses Rifkin. Today, we're learning about the Underrepresentation Curriculum Project. From the website underrep.com, the Underrepresentation Curriculum is a free, flexible curriculum for STEM instructors to teach about injustice and change the culture of STEM. Using tools such as data analysis, hypothesis creation, and investigation, students look critically at science through the lens of equity and inclusion. Another article shares that it has been adapted for students from middle school through college, and there is a growing community of fellow educators to provide support. To learn everything we can about the Underrepresentation Curriculum Project, I'm speaking with Angela Flynn, a teacher at the Gordon School, a nursery through eight independent school in Rhode Island, and Moses Rifkin, a science teacher at University Prep, a six through 12 independent school in Seattle, Washington. 
They are part of a team of, I believe, 12 editors for the curriculum. Hello, Angela and Moses. Welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise. I often like to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your path? Moses, can you lead us off? Because I have listened to past episodes, I was thinking about this ahead of time. And uh, with your permission, I think the list is actually kind of long. And maybe I can just leave it there. Like <laughs> once I started thinking about mentors, there are just so many people who have touched me along the way. Kathy Brown and Jan Tullis were, were science instructors for me who I felt like really saw me. And that was really important to me as I sort of thought about what I wanted to do. Um, Hope Jaren and Jack Mustard were people who in college uh, gave a like sort of nerdy undergraduate some research experience and trusted me to present that. And that was like incredibly impactful. Um, and then there are all these people who have just helped me become better teachers. Uh, I won't name them all by name, but um, also want to acknowledge the fact that, as you said, the 12 editors of the URC, maybe mentor is the wrong word, but like I just learned so much from them through this project. So that's my short version. Uh, and I just, I really appreciate the question. No, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Angela, do you have something you'd like to share? When you first posed the question, at first I was like, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to find the time to think about this and like come up with a good answer. And then um, I I think I'm, I'm realizing that I, I don't have a list of, of mentors. Um, I, I, think I have colleagues who um, have been really supportive and who've encouraged me, you know, to, to try uh, different things, including, you know, teaching the URC to middle schoolers, but I'm feeling a little bit sad to acknowledge the fact that I can't name a mentor. Um, and it feels like it's been kind of a lonely journey to where I've mm. been. Um, but along the way, I found, um, I think, people who are like-minded, like Moses, and that has been probably like a lifeline for me. But I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that I, I don't have a person. Um, but I do want to give a shout out to um, my dear colleagues, Emily Abaddon, who's been someone who's been a big champion of um, what I'm trying to do. And Tamar Paul, who's been like my work wife, she was, I was a student teacher um, uh, when I first met her and um, she's given me the confidence to sort of go boldly into the directions that I've gone into and um, Irene Horton. So those are my, that's my posse. No, that's wonderful. And, and I, and I know when I was posed the question back at myself about, did I have a mentor? I have to say in, in the realm of education, I didn't. I didn't really have any mentors that helped get me into the field. But then what I found was there was the mentorship of, of colleagues where we really mentor each other. And, and my last episode where I, I talked to my mentor, Jamie Visenka, he said that in a way I was one of his mentors uh, as well. So it, it, always, it always goes both ways. So, so that was beautifully put. So I'd love to learn a little more about each of you before we start exploring what the underrepresentation curriculum is and how we can use it. So let's start with Angela. Can you say a little bit about how you got into teaching and why using the URC is important for you and your students? Yeah, I um, kind of came to teaching and especially teaching um, science in a really um, strange way. I um, got my degree in mathematics. And even though I took some science classes, um, I discovered that um, a lot of 
jobs in independent schools were looking for this math science integrated kind of role. And uh, my first job was as a math and science teacher. So um, even though I had an affinity for science, you know, I was also for the first probably five years learning right alongside my students. <laughs> and it wasn't until I uh, switched schools where I discovered that identity has a lot to do with not just how uh, students see themselves as being able to uh, be successful in STEM in particular, um, but also just reflecting on my own experience as a Black woman being um, for my entire time um, getting my degree, the minority um, in my graduating class, there were just two of us, two Black women. And, um, you know, math degrees are not very prolific. So it was a small department. And in the small department, um, we were, we were, we just, if I had graduated, if I, I, I spent um, a semester working. So if I'd graduated with, with my class, I would have been the only Black person in my um, department. So I think just reflecting on that and realizing that in mostly white spaces and education spaces, I had folks who didn't really have a sense of what that experience was like. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't want to be the exception anymore. So uh, I wanted them to start investigating why things are the way they are. And science is just a great vehicle for asking questions and developing hypotheses and then trying to test them, trying to find data and seeing what it, what it says. So um, it's been, you know, since my, since I started teaching life science, you know, genetics was the way I got at it. Um, thinking about is, is who we're, you know, is what we're born with, what determines why we are successful or not, or are there other bigger systems, mm. you know, at play that kind of let the marbles run where they will um, in very intentional ways. So that's how I got, that's how I decided that, you know, I think I found my people when I um, attended an unconference hosted by the URC. And I was like, oh my God, thank God there are other people who are thinking about these and have been thinking about it. And I'm not alone anymore. And um, it just puts so much fire in me and it's mm. been um, vital. And I've transformed this work from just the science realm into the mathematics realm with my students. So that's been great. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Uh, when you're speaking about the, like the ge genetics piece and getting into from that, and you know, I'm really curious how the curriculum does that. But uh, obviously, we've got questions for that, so I'm not going to dive into that quite yet. But I, you've got my 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 appetite peaked here. Uh, same for you, Moses. Say a little bit about how you got into teaching and why using the URC is important for you and your students. Yeah, I think uh, listening to Angela's response, it's like the same things but filtered through the experience of a white man. Uh, hmm. I would have said, uh, well, I, I would have said several years ago, like, well, I just liked science when I was younger. And um, I think as I've aged, I've started in sort of the, the opposite experience of what Angela described. I've started to realize that like, I have this long list of mentors, maybe in part because as a white man, I matched what people sort of pictured as a scientist and I received a lot of support and that'll lead back to like my connection to the URC. But uh, yeah, I left college. I, I majored in geophysics. I loved science. And when I was leaving college, I felt pretty sure I was going to go to grad school, but I sort of quote unquote, took a year off to teach. Um, 
thinking that I would return to, to academia. And uh, at the time, my motivation for teaching was like, I just want to talk about science with people because I love it and I want them to love it. And I was fortunate to land at a school where they could take a really raw, enthusiastic teacher like me um, and get give him a lot of support. And I think over time, I came to realize that for me, teaching is less about the content and more about the students. Um, and for me, the science that I teach is like a really awesome medium to, to engage in that with students. And so I worked at, a, at an independent school like Angela, and I think that's, that's uh, a weird coincidence of the two people who showed up for this interview. The, the URC isn't only for independent schools, but it just so happens that the two of us are there. You know, the student body that I teach is predominantly white uh, and mostly looks like me. And so I think as I was realizing that my path to science was really shaped by my identities, that felt like a, a realization that I wish somebody had helped me have earlier. You know, it would have been a little less uncomfortable if I had been sort of taught that, like I was taught Newton's laws. So uh, I felt really strongly motivated to, to both improve the science that I love and to help the students that I was teaching who didn't have that perspective. Um, and for a long time wrestled with like, well, how, if I'm a science teacher, how can I also do this work of um, talking about identity? And the URC was sort of what arose out of that question. Um, I do want to add too that that was my narrative for a long time. And maybe three years ago, um, I was helped to see that that narrative was like true for most of my students, but also totally erased the students of color who were in my class. Mm. Um, and I think a thing that I'm still learning about is how do I have a conversation uh, about, in my case, about race in the context of science with a mostly but not entirely white student body. Had you had other editors on the podcast, um, some people are using uh, the URC in very different demographic classrooms. And so it's not just a curriculum for white kids, but um, that's sort of, that's the population that I'm mostly working with and figuring out what that looks like is, is my job these days. No, it's, it's interesting. So I, I've, I've come to, to see this curriculum a little, I think from a similar perspective that you are teaching at Hamilton college, uh, I would say it's a similar audience to, to what you have. And, you know, but this is my first year trying to use it. We were looking at some of the resources over the summer and thinking about how can we start bringing this into our lab curriculum and seeing how it's an important place to do it. And, and I feel like I, you know, I did my best and I feel like I've got a lot of room for an improve for improvement for, for talking about, uh, for talking about these things that, that I feel like I'm only just beginning to understand myself. So I'm, I'm really grateful for this curriculum being out here and, and what it's going to be able to help provide for me and my own growth and, and ability to, to communicate better. Let's, let's start digging into it a little bit here. So these last few years, the nation has been boiling over and divided on the idea and practice of talking about topics like race, privilege, injustice, and inequality in the classroom. And on the open end of things, I know many college campuses and departments, as I said, my own included, are dedicated to learning, discussing, and, and acting on these in the classroom. On the closed end of the world, uh, the URC blog notes that over the past few years, lawmakers in states across the USA have introduced a series of so-called anti-critical race theory bills, and their goal is to intimidate teachers and stymie discussion of racial and gender in inequity, especially in schools. So yeah, we've got two, two ends of a spectrum here. 
for us educators who are ready and able to step into action, it is enormously helpful to have a robust and complete curriculum to turn to as we take first steps. But what's amazing to me is that this curriculum isn't, isn't new, really. It's, it's a product. It's not a product of the most recent wave of support for what we're calling justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Its roots were, I think I read, at least 15 years ago. Moses, I think you were part of the so-called early days. Uh, could you talk about how this curriculum first got started and how it grew from there? Yeah. Uh, I, as I think I sort of mentioned before, was really struggling with this question of, you know, I care about racial justice. I care about science teaching. How do I do both those things at the same time? And um, for me, when I hit on the question of looking at the field of physics, which is what I teach, um, demographically and asking my students to explore the question of like who, how does the population of physicists look like the population of America and how does it not? That's where the word underrepresentation comes into the URC. Um, I realized that was a really fruitful question where I felt like I could authentically, you know, help my students practice scientific skills in the service of exploring questions that they weren't exploring before. That was the start for me. It was just something I did. I shared that with an administrator of my school. He shared that at a conference. There happened to be a physics teacher in the audience at that conference um, who reached out to me and asked me to speak about that uh, on his blog. That blog post got picked up by conservative media and uh, within a few days, it was featured on Fox News. Ooh. That was a wild whirlwind. Oh, um, my. But the really positive, it was on balance, a very positive thing for me. Um, I heard a lot from my school. I heard a lot from former students about how the work that I was doing was really important, far more than any pushback that I got. Um, and it had the, the huge bonus of attracting a lot of attention. And that I got a lot of emails from science teachers saying like, I heard about this. I'm sorry you're going through that. Can you tell me more about what you're doing? So um, the blog post used to end with uh, just a, like a mess of a zip file of all my lesson plans, which <laughs> I never meant to share, but people were asking. So we just added it on there. But as those science teachers reached out to me and expressed interest, I started asking, hey, would you be interested in working with me to, to make this more accessible for teachers who want it? So um, it grew from just like a thing that I did in my classroom to a more polished and accessible thing that other teachers could use over time. And it's been interesting to see how, how the national conversation about justice and the place of, of identity and, and equity in science teaching has changed over time. I think in some ways it's dramatically expanded and we've seen interest in the URC shoot up recently because um, there are lots of science teachers looking, you know, Googling, how do I, how do, I do this in a science mm -hmm. teaching context? Um, and simultaneously, I think there's, I think the perils have always been there. Maybe perils is the wrong word. The challenges have always been there. Um, but now it, it feels maybe heightened on both ends of the spectrum. But mm. um, I tend, a thing that I want to highlight about the URC, and maybe this will come up later, is it's very intentionally not about telling students what to think, um, both because that is fraught and will probably get you in trouble. Um, and, but mostly because it just doesn't work. Like it doesn't work for me to tell students how the world works. It's much better as we know as science teachers for them to find it themselves. And so I think that that statement on the website about anti-CRT efforts 
you know, what's in there is like, if you're interested in teaching the URC, you don't really have anything to fear because it's not, you're not doing what people are afraid you're doing. You're asking them questions and you're inviting them to, to explore with each other. So um, yeah, that, that, as you said, the closed end of the spectrum feels scary, but I don't think we are like hiding, hiding an agenda here. We're just mm -hmm. inviting students into a, into a conversation. I hope that's relevant to the question you asked, but that's sort of where we are today. No, no, that's absolutely. Uh, I'm curious when when the website itself came online. Do you happen to remember? I would say there was a website, I want to say like five years ago, and then maybe two summers ago, we did a lot of work to make it in its current form. So I think the short answer is uh, this is about two years old in its current, current okay. form. Okay. So I wanted to say I'm, I'm really impressed with with the website underrep.com. And I'll make sure that that's in my show notes for folks to check out. Uh, in a way, it, it's quite simple. There are only a few tabs and I would say there's no fluff. The curriculum tab is split into four sections that are meant to guide a new user. And the resources help a teacher make a plan, grapple with facilitation, point you to the community of help, and then provide the full curriculum. And these pages are filled with frequently asked questions and the editor's responses to them and additional article, articles and documents to read, helping you at every step along the way. Uh, it looks, I mean, it looks fantastic. And I, I wanna take a look, a close look at the curriculum itself now. So the website shares that the URC is divided into three units and that the curriculum is flexible. You can choose the lessons that best fit your students and teaching context. And, and I'll list what the three units are. And then Angela, I hope you might be able to talk us through kind of some of that big picture of this three unit design. So unit one, students explore the nature of science, who does STEM and who does not. Unit two, students learn about topics relevant to underrepresentation. And unit three, students apply what they learn to take action. So I'm curious your, your perspective on, on how this all fits together. I love the layout of the URC because it starts by inviting some observation. You know, what do you notice about um, you know, the current state of, of STEM. And, you know, I, I know that I never think that all of my students are going to end up in STEM, but I know that um, their lives are going to be impacted by what people do in careers in STEM. So whether they're going to move into careers like that or, um, or not, they're, that's going to impact their lives in one way or another. So um, I love that it invites this question of like, pause and just notice and think about why things are the way they are. And then like any good um, science unit, um, you come up with some questions. And I think um, as Moses said, there's very little of us telling um, the students, you know, so these are the questions we're going to be answering during this unit. Um, it's more of what do you notice and, and what does it make you wonder? And um, even at the middle school level, mm. students are able to go, huh, that's interesting. Or I wonder why there are so many more, you know, Asian Americans represented in STEM than their representation in the general population. Um, I wonder why that is. So I think it lends itself to um, coming up with various hypotheses and the lessons do a really good job of scaffolding that process for students in a way that leads them to say, well, we're going to need to find some data. We're going to be making some claims and um, some of them might be valid. Some of them might not. Some of them may have no data because no one thought to ask those questions and 
hmm. find that information. Um, so they kind of get to see, you know, the process of science and then actually start thinking about, well, who is in the room determines what kinds of questions people are interested in asking. Um, so I wonder whether there are questions that haven't been asked because some people haven't been invited to the table hmm. or some people have been actively prevented from joining um, the table. And this is all well and good, you know, learning about systemic racism and sexism and um, colorism gets you to dig at um, why underrepresentation might exist, what are the causes. And I think it's, it's easy to get to that place where you're feeling hopeless and the data is just really disillusioning. And, mm -hmm. you know, my students have been looking at graphs and going, I just can't believe that these are the outcomes for black boys. Like, how is that? Um, so it can be easy to sort of end on that note and say, well, the world kind of sucks and now let's move on to the next thing. But the beauty of this um, unit is that we don't stop there. And even, you know, from 12 year olds to 21 year olds, there's the opportunity to think about what agency you have, what spheres of influence um, exist for you that you can do something, anything, whether it's as little as alerting your community to the disparities or um, actually going out and doing some kind of service project that um, impacts the greater community or some kind of institutional um, reform. So I think there's an open-endedness to what you do with what you know and I think it's accessible to everyone, regardless of their means or their spheres of influence, because the action steps can be personal. Um, they can be just within the classroom or they can be, you know, beyond that. And I think students walk away starting to see the world with questions and not just complacent about what they're coming into, but now they have sort of a process for thinking about disparities that they see and feeling empowered to tackle them and try to do something about them. A couple of questions come up around that. So, so one is, are there actual data sets that are available for the students to sort of pour through if the, as they're coming up with questions from government websites and education websites and things like that? Yeah. So I think um, living in a an age where there is so much information, so much data, there's actually quite a lot of data um, available. The Pew Research Center is um, a great source of just like raw numbers. Um, and there's been, you know, different um, investigations done. Today, we were looking at something that was put up by the New York Times a few years ago. But, you know, what's great is my students are thinking a lot about this question of Asians and recognizing that Asians actually comprises so many different kinds of people. And so while there is a lot of data, there's no one's really thought to unpack that and parse through, you know, the experiences of um, let's say Southeast Asians is, is vastly different from East Asians. And, you know, what, what story, what can we um, surmise from the information and what stories are just um, and voices are silenced by the data because um, we don't know who, who's being um, counted um, in this way. I think it just leads to more and more questions. And um, 
I don't know that, you know, I, I think that that awareness is coming online now and, and places like Pew are thinking about those kinds of things, but obviously there's still quite a bit of work to be done. Um, I think even in the category of African-Americans, you know, Black folks are counted in those numbers, but their, their experiences are so different, you know, when you're thinking of Black immigrants versus um, African-Americans it's hard to know really the truth behind those numbers. So um, in some ways the information is incomplete, but the trends are, are pretty stark and, and, and you can go from there and maybe ask questions and start to find ways to gather that data. Yeah, another one of the questions that comes to mind then is on, is on the action step. And it, it looks like the recommendation on, on the site was that you should really if you're only going to do a few lessons, you should really try to do something from each unit along the way. So, and, and I hadn't, I hadn't investigated much into this action step piece in unit three. So I'm curious what some of that community action or involvement might, might look like. And Angela, if you're getting tired of talking, I want to let Moses jump in, or if you both want to, you know, put an answer for what, what are some of the things your students have, have been doing in that, in that third phase? My students are really interested in making PSAs. They love the idea of, you know, working with different tech to create like a 30 second highlight of, of something that they've done. So for my students, often that's been one place that they, it, it's an opportunity to also be creative and um, bring awareness, you know, as much as 12 and 13 year olds can. <laughs> and uh, some students in the past have made um, like a, a website um, that explores a, a topic and, you know, posters are a good staple of, of the middle school project mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as well, but with an audience. Um, this year, um, my students, I'm going to be inviting my students to um, lead some workshops. Um, mm-hmm. We often have teach-ins around the MLK weekend and um, we've postponed ours to February, but one of the, um, the options for workshops is going to be seventh graders leading their middle school peers in um, very a very focused reflection of their research and what they've done about it and an invitation for their audience to do something about it as well. So I'm excited about, about that. Mm, um, oh, that's awesome. But Moses has more experience, so he can uh, share some of the things he's, his students have done. The answers are, are pretty similar. The PSA uh, maybe mm-hmm. takes a different form, but like, I, I think that in some ways reflects back to me, like when students are excited about what they're learning and want to share with other people, that feels, feels like a win. Um, I do maybe a thing that I can add is maybe the, maybe that reflects the fact that for many of my students who are white, this idea of learning about systemic racism is eye-opening and, and new. Um, there's some really exciting research done by one of the other editors, uh, Abigail Dane, who works in a a two-year college in Seattle where her student body is mostly students of color. And in that context, the like, what do you want to do with this has often led to much more like, here is how we can do self-care as uh, scientists of color, or here's how we can give upcoming students who share our identities support and like tools for surviving uh, an often unwelcoming environment. So I think in some ways, what students want to do with this reflects who those students are and what their experience with it is. And the fact that the URC leaves that open is, is I think really important. Thank you. 
you kind of got to this a, a little bit, but we'll see if, if we'll see if there's there's uh, more. So, uh, Angela, can you share a little bit about whom you teach and how you implement the URC in your classroom? You, you said a little bit about, I guess, some of the the projects the, that that they could do the the PSAs, and and that they're middle school students. So, yeah. do you find that they're up to the challenge of these these big important ideas? My school. Um has one of a, one of our guiding principles is that um, we have a multicultural practice. So from really, really early on, um, our students are having conversations about identity, um, gender identity, racial and ethnic identity. We have affinity groups starting um, in kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade. So conversations about race and the language around that are not foreign to them. And um, also embedded in our curriculum is just a, a multi, it's rooted in multicultural practice. Um, so, you know, it's not just happening in social studies, but it's also happening in science. And so in some ways I kind of have it really good because um, a, a constant reflection of my students is that, oh, I didn't know this, but I'm not surprised. And so the, the conversation gets elevated really quickly. And I think middle schoolers are not afraid to um, ask the obvious. Um, and they're not mm -hmm. afraid to say, I noticed this and I noticed this. Is this really what's happening? Um, so those conversations have actually been really rich and really inspiring there is definitely the indignance of like, I cannot believe this is happening. And I think there's even more um, energy around, I got to do something about it. Like people need to know about this. So for me, I'm doing it in a math class. And um, initially there's, wait, why are we doing this in math class? Like, what does this have to do with math? Are we going back, Miss Flynn, to doing like actual math? And I think the leap for students, once they start recognizing that, well, we can start to answer some of these questions with math. We can um, understand yeah. proportionality. We can uh, do some analysis around, you know, whether something is fair based on the numbers that we see. Um, we're also learning these really important graph skills. Um, look at all the different ways you can represent data. So you know, they're able to come along seeing like math isn't just about going through the steps for solving an equation, but there's this application that helps us understand the world and try to make a little sense of why it is the way it is. And then they just run with it. Um, hmm. The discussions have been really rich. The connections have been really insightful. Um, they're pulling uh, other connections from other disciplines or other things, they said, you know, I, I noticed this and now this makes total sense. Um, and then of course I have students who I think are steeped in this, in current events and they have these conversations at home and they're able to like really elevate the conversation. So I, I often get just, you know, I get chills sometimes just thinking about what these 12 year olds are able to do with this really hard information. And once we get over the skill of, you know, this is the x-axis, this is the y-axis. What is it telling us about parents' income in relation to their children's um, success in life? Um, then they're like, oh, this is this is 
again, new information, but I guess I'm not surprised. Um, and I was telling Moses um, yesterday, I'm, it's kind of sad to hear a 12 year old say, I didn't know this, but I'm not surprised, you know, for them to sort of recognize that I, I just expected that it, it would be this bad. And, you know, now that I see the data, actually, it confirms my gut feeling about um, what's been really going on. But I think if you lay the groundwork early and try not to infantilize children too much, to know that they are actually able to have brutally honest conversations about topics that make adults really squirmy. You know, when we think about underrepresentation, I think there's, there is some underrepresentation in the conversations around this. Um, it's mostly adults having these conversations, but, but kids really can engage and have a lot to say about it. And I think want to have these conversations. I think one of the great things is here right now, we're, we're beginning to normalize having these types of conversations, thinking about this in, in a way that, that, that certainly my generation, it was not even on, on the radar. So, you know, here I can be an adult and maybe I'm a little squirmy trying to talk about these, these topics, but hopefully these generations coming after us now that we are engaging these conversations, we'll feel more and more comfortable about this. We'll be more and more willing to, to do something about this. You know, you know, I'm so happy thinking that my three and a half year old in his preschool, they're, they're reading books sometimes where it's like, we're going to learn about families today. And it's not just a white man and a white woman with a little white child. It's showing what all the different families can look like. It's, you know, mm. maybe somebody of one color and somebody of another color, maybe it's two men, maybe it's two women, two women having uh, a child. So beginning to normalize that in a way that never would have happened when I was a child. And, mm. and I, I think that's the way we have to move forward. Mm. Um, Add something to that, Brad? Sure. I think, you know, when I think at the other end of the age spectrum with high school and university age students, I think we as teachers have this huge uh, power over getting to name what counts, right? Like mm. the books that your, your child is reading is a way of a teacher narrating what is and isn't a family. And I think when we step into the physics classroom, we get to narrate what is and isn't physics. Um, but I feel like I can build a really compelling argument with my students. And, you know, the same is true at, we've, we've seen the URC be successful at the college level as well, because learning what sorts of questions impact the actual practice of physics, um, including as Angie said, like who is in the room, is very much a part of preparing the next generation of physicists. It's not something separate from teaching physics, um, but these are the mm -hmm. sorts of conversations that our students need to learn how to have so that, I mean, even if our only motivation was to improve the discoveries in the field of science, this would be a means to do it. Mm. Yeah, part of, the, part of the framing that we were sharing with our students this semester was that, you know, these conversations impact who is going to be a physicist in, in the future and that we need to help help open the doors to make it available and accessible for, for everybody. And so, so the more we learn now, the more we can help to help with that, that new bright future, hopefully. Mm. Totally. And that, squirmy, that, that squeamishness that you and I feel of like, oh, I didn't, I don't know how to do this. I think I certainly don't want my students to feel that squeamishness. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, my students will readily acknowledge that the stories we begin to tell ourselves 
you know, now are sort of the ones that make us, um, you know, turn our attention toward places where we feel like we might belong. Um, I think belonging is a, is a really big piece of doing, you know, pursuing what we pursue. And um, if anyone knows anything about belonging, it's a middle schooler, you know, I know where I belong. I don't, I know where I don't belong. I know who my people are. I know who my people are not. And I think um, beginning to recognize that those kinds of uh, factors do really shape what we even allow ourselves to consider um, as being part of our story is really powerful to them. And I, I, I really think without this kind of um, discussion, we kind of just let things be the way they are. And, um, you know, as, as James Baldwin said, um, we can't change what we cannot confront. We got to confront it to change it. So this, I think this is a good place to start. Yeah. Brad, I was listening to your AAPT review last night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, I agree with Angela that like belonging is like super, super important at the middle school, but, you know, that's an area of research in PER right now. You were talking about Emily Marshman's presentation mm -hmm. about gender equity and stereotype threat in, in upper level classes and the construct of belonging doesn't go away when you leave middle school. Mm -mm. Another another one I wanted to make a little comment on, uh, Angela, when you were saying about your students saying, are we going to go back to doing real math? It, it's that you, we teach them, let's say, the steps of algebra and they complain, when am I ever going to use this? And then you <laughs> actually try to give them a, a really important application of it. And it's like, when are we going to go back to just learning rules? <laughs> right, right. <It's> um, <laughs> yeah, they, they're, they're in the moment. They're always in the moment. <laughs> But I, I am I'm such a big advocate of of making our disciplines relevant to the world that our students are in and that we're are going into and the world that we want them to to have us to, for, for us to shape into the future. So whether that's in, in physics with um, physics for life science, which is something that I'm really interested in in teaching and how to make it applicable, but now in uh, I, I love this idea of using data that's out there to understand the world more and what what doesn't look right. <laughs> it's like we we shouldn't be happy with what we're seeing in this data uh, and, and how to act on that. Mm. Is there any recommended minimum amount of the material from the URC to use or are there certain lessons that you definitely wouldn't want to skip? I think, I think you have to start by setting the stage. There has to be some kind of ground rules or like common uh, agreements, community agreements about how to engage in, in, this, um, in these conversations. And the, the good thing about starting there is that if things start going off the rails, you can say, let's go back to the ground rules we set and um, let's take a look at what's falling apart and what needs to be shored up and it's sort of like a home base. So I think you have to start with setting the stage. That's unit zero. Um, in unit one, I think it sort of also lays the groundwork for like, why would we bother doing this in the first place? So I think it's the, it's the place where you get to identify like, what is the problem? You know, um, what, what is going on that we need to do this in, in math class or physics class? So unit one, um, I think a lot of my students found a lot of benefit from talking about subjectivity. It spilled over into um, social studies and 
history. They're reading Animal Farm right now. So, you know, they had a lot to t- talk about there and a lot of themes from Animal Farm, you know, how the oppressor becomes the, uh, the oppressed becomes the oppressor seeped back into um, our conversations in math. So um, giving them that language, that sort of like um, starting place is, is, is what the first unit does. And then I think depending on whom you have in the room, there are certain lessons that you, uh, you know, are going to resonate more than others. Um, in my class, you know, I probably am not going to teach systemic racism because it's something that they've investigated and looked at in various ways um, and are doing so right now. They're doing that in humanity. So I don't want to um, continue down that line, but um Sexism is is definitely a, a place that there's a lot of energy, and um, there, it, it, I think it the, the biggest connection students have to that is through sports. So they're very eager to talk about um, how you know this is reflected in STEM um, and what that means when women are denied op- opportunities um, to contribute, and I. I I think what other lessons you choose in there, um, I think uh, affirmative action is is definitely a very, it, it brings up a lot of lively discussion. And it goes back to this question of meritocracy, which I think might be the place to start the second unit is who deserves what? Um, and is, is this, um, you know, this is sort of like a, you call it like almost a founding principle of our, of our country. And um, is that is that accurate? So I think that lesson on meritocracy kind of leads nicely to a lot of the other lessons. So you don't have to do all of them. With my students, like I said, I'm going to be focusing more on other identities. And then you have to end with the action piece, whether it's um, student-led brainstorming or, um, you know, if, if some students need some scaffolding. I, I got all the picture books in our library and um, my students are going to, th- all the picture books in our library about STEM. So my students are going to be thinking about, um, for those who can't really come up with an option, about representation in picture books and STEM, because that's a very tangible, concrete thing. And, um, you know, other constituents in the school will be interacting with it. And it might lead to profiling some of those books in a different way than um, has normally been profiled. So I think the action piece means that kids start to see themselves as agents of change um, in, in their world. So that that's what I would um, recommend. Okay, thank you. Moses, do you have anything that, that you'd like to add here too? Just wanna highlight what An- Angela said about each context is really different and so a little bit from each unit is, I think, the answer to the question. You know, you want to set the stage, as she said. You want to give students some sort of phenomenon to look at, whether it's the nature of science or the demographics of science or physics in our case. You want to explore the questions that arise, and then you want to ask them what they want to do about it. Um, we see some teachers who have, you know, I have maybe a half an hour over two days. What could I do with the URC in that time? Um, and we see some teachers who say, I have eight days of class that I want to dedicate to this. And mm-hmm. so it's very intentional that it's, it's meant to be flexible for teachers to use as they see fit. 
Yeah, and I want to I mentioned to the listeners from what I've seen looking at the the website, there are examples posed of you know this is what you could do, or or examples of what teachers have done in different situations. Like here's what teacher A has done given this amount of time in high school. Here's what teacher B has done given this amount of time in a college level. So there are examples of what that could look like. And I really appreciated, appreciated being able to see that, you know, so that I don't think that, oh, gee, if I can't spend as much time because I don't have as much time, it's like there are other people in a similar position and they found ways to introduce these ideas. So always something is, is better than, than doing nothing. Mm. You mentioned uh, that one of the things on the website is a connection to the user community. And I think that's really over time, my hope is that's going to be the superpower that, that mm. there won't be one way of doing it, but there will be thousands of people who you could ask until you find yeah. the people who are in a similar context. And we're starting to see that uh, gaining some life uh, online. A, a lot of some of these resources and community built around it actually reminds me quite a bit of the Step Up community, which, which is a community I, I spoke with um, last year. So uh, this is also a question that I, I asked those individuals I spoke with. So there's a, and we started getting into this a little bit. There's a certain amount of safety and comfort in just sticking with physics or just sticking with mathematics in the classroom and not jumping into social issues. It can be uncomfortable to talk about topics like underrepresentation, justice, diversity, and equity, especially if we're only starting to get involved. So I'm curious what advice each of you could offer to teachers who are are feeling this way. I think the support of, uh, if you're really terrified of knowing that another teacher at another school is doing it, and maybe if you could coordinate and do it at the same time, um, might not mm-hmm. might make it less terrifying mm-hmm. um, because you can debrief and go, today really sucked, or I had this wonderful moment with my students today. Um, I also recommend that you just step in it and um, obviously be careful not to do harm. I think even just doing what you're comfortable with to start to feel like, well, everyone can talk about meritocracy. Yes, it's a little touchy, but it's not like maybe as on, you know, as, as um, radioactive as like race. Um, so I, I can at least do meritocracy and get kids thinking, huh, you know, maybe, maybe we're not all here because of our hard work. Maybe some of us got here because we got to um, start at the easy level and it's just been on the easy level this whole time. So I think just starting starting there, um, there I, that's the beauty of it too. I think even for teachers, never mind their students, you can do something that's just enough and still get a lot out of it. And then as your comfort level increases and maybe as you connect with other people in the um, like on the Slack community who are trying this out, you can say, okay, next year, I'm going to do the lesson on, I'm going to try, I'm going to do racism this year. (laughs) And, um, you know, maybe have a thought partner or uh, that that you can do that with. And I think that's really how it starts. You start, you can start small. I don't think you have to do the whole buffet, Um, you know, just put a few things on your plate and, and feel good about it. And I would also really recommend getting feedback from your students. I think Mm -hmm. they're like the best, um, you know, like if I sit down and I'm like, okay, honestly, guys, like I did this for the first time. Can you tell me what things worked well and what things did not? Um, My students today helped me with the wording of some 
some questions, you know, and they're like, yeah, that feels much better, Miss Flynn. They're such an awesome resource. And I think when you have good relationships with your students, you can be honest with them about, I've never done this before. So you're going to help me if I make some mistakes, because I also want to learn from you. And then I think you kind of take a little bit of the pressure off of you for uh, of messing up because you give them, you let them know that they're sort of partners in this with you. You're learning from them and mostly you're learning from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know that they're learning from you. Um, I think mostly you're learning from them and um, it's scary, but it's okay. It's okay to try. No, no, th- those are great. Those are great points. And uh, I certainly found it very helpful for me this, this semester and, and not even realizing it until you pointed that out that, you know, my, my colleague and I, uh, my colleague, Kristen Burson and I, we were um, working on the, the introductory physics laboratory together for the, the first year's students. And we were able to put three lessons into, uh, into the curriculum and just being able to have somebody also thinking about it, bouncing ideas off of them. And I felt like we made each other's work better. And that we both recognize we got a long way to go yet, but that we felt we felt great that we we got something going. So that was that was great. So thank you, Kristen, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said so much of the same things, uh, and I thought that answer was beautiful. the The only thing I would add is just if I was talking to somebody who felt uncomfortable, is just to normalize that it is uncomfortable because I think in part we don't want to do harm, and I think that discomfort can really reflect a, a beautiful starting place and. Um, but I also think, uh, if we want to see a different outcome for science, we need to be a little uncomfortable and lean into that. So I, I sometimes tell people interested in the URC that we, we ask our students to do hard things all the time. And if we're a little uncomfortable, that's okay. As long as, as she said, we're trying to minimize the harm that we do, but coming to recognize the, the harm that we do, if we don't act on our discomfort, um, yeah. has been really impactful for me as a teacher. So I'd like to give both of you a chance to share some final thoughts about the program, the response you've seen in the teaching community and from students and and what you hopes you have for the future. Um, Angela, I'll I'll start with you. Well, I think our work is never done. And I think um, any, you know, I'm starting with young kids because I want them to take this with them to whatever high schools they go to. Um, This is my sphere of influence. And I want them to feel like when they go to high school and they're feeling like they don't belong in their physics classroom, they can think about this unit and say, I I know the phenomenon that's happening here. And I know that there are other people who are feeling this way. And maybe what I'm going to do is seek those people out so I don't feel so alone. Um, I think really giving folks uh, tools for acknowledging what's happening and rather than staying in the bewilderment, feeling like I can go talk to the department head. Like I have some agency. Um, I know that as a college student, I couldn't even name a person I could go talk to about how much I felt like I was a fraud in my math classes and how, you know, getting my math degree in some ways was for me 
proving that I belonged, but it was my own little victory. Like no one, no one knew the hills I had to climb, you know, to quote Amanda Gorman. And I think, you know, part of why I, I teach middle school is because I, the only people who validated that I, I belonged were, were my peers. It wasn't necessarily, I, I think I had like one sixth grade teacher um, growing up in Kenya who was like, you are going places. And she's really just the one person in my whole entire life that I can think of who challenged me and um, told me that, that I was in the right place in, in that, you know, hard math class. So I think starting as early as you can with those stories is how we start to effect change. And college is, is another place. I mean, I think college students are still young. You know, they're not, they're not that old. Their identities, I think, are still in, in formation. So not being able to talk about things, I think, has gotten us where, where we are collectively, you know. Um, and I think the energy in the science community moving from, oh, you can't talk about that. That's, that's really subjective. There's no, we don't do subjective in STEM. We do objective. We do hard, cold numbers. They have no feelings. I think being able to take a step back and say, wait, wait a minute. We are people doing this. We have feelings. We have opinions. We have perspectives. We have experiences and backgrounds and things that got us to this place. That's something I think um, it's been heartening to see the science community um, start to really engage in these conversations. And for folks who are afraid of CRT and what talking about the, you know, the truth might do to our country, I think I would say, well, yeah, it's, it's not easy and it still has to be done. And you know, I think our students might have to be the ones who do it. Thank you for that. I guess my answer to the question is, is I agree with everything Angela said. And uh, the answer that I would have given if I had gone first was my hope for this is that it continues to grow. You know, it really is for, for all the slickness of the website and the, the quality of the lessons. It really is a bootstrap operation um, of a bunch of educators who care about this, giving up their free time. And I think it's good right now, but I think it'll be great as, as more and more educators get their eyes on it and continue to give feedback and continue to share with other people and continue to point out the ways in which it doesn't work for their context and uh, could be made better over time. I think the response that we're having from students is just unbelievably positive, both in terms of how they, how they like the lessons and what they get out of the lessons. And we're seeing that as we start to do some preliminary research, we're seeing that at all levels. And the response we're getting from educators is also super positive. So it feels like um, our instincts are pretty good. And I hope more and more people can access this resource, which is there. We tried to set the table for people as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I hope they'll share it with other people. So obviously there's the website that folks can go uh, learn more, but I'm wondering: is there is there anything else? Are there are there social media accounts that are posting? Are there there workshops, conferences, unconferences? Apparently, uh, anything like that. <laughs> you should take this one, Moses. 
think uh, there are some of those things, but as I said before, this is really a labor of love for a few people on their weekends and, mm-hmm. and evenings. So there is, there is a Twitter account under rep STEM, uh, but I don't think anybody right now has the bandwidth to, to do that. So uh, I think honestly, the, the, the most concise answer is to join the URC user Slack, which is linked to on the website. Um, I guess the first step is to go to the website and take a look at the resources that are there and then um, join the community um, in part because that's where we're sharing when there is, for example, there's, um, we heard from a lot of users that they wanted to have a, other people to talk to who were trying the same things at the same time. So, so now there's a, a spring user cohort that has been sort of organized by one of the editors. And at least at this stage in the URC, it's very much a, there's not a, uh, there's not momentum to the things that are happening, but they sort of pop up on an as needed basis. And the Slack is the best place to hear about those. This seems like something that could use some grant funding to, uh, uh, to get some workshops out there, uh, you know, half day things at AAPT or maybe one or two day workshops. Cause I could just see being able to work through the curriculum with fellow teachers who want to bring it into their classroom would be so powerful and would be something I would you know, personally, absolutely want to participate in, but obviously people can't just be doing these things for free all the time. So yeah, if anyone out there wants to help us write a grant, uh, that's another thing on our, uh. on our to-do list. <laughs> Cause you're right that there is a, there's a momentum to this that once you have, you need resources to get resources and, uh, but we have done, um, most years, a half day workshop at the APT summer meeting. Okay. And, I don't actually know if that's upcoming for this year, whether um, that slipped off the radar, but we are as much as our capacity allows trying to, to put ourselves out there. And just as you said, bring teachers together to, to experientially um, explore the URC because that really is the best way to do it. I really want to thank both of you so much for, for joining me for this conversation today. This has been so, so meaningful for me and I know for so many other teachers as, as well. And it's just, heartening hearing both of you talking about this curriculum from your perspectives and, and how you can, how we can bring this to the community. So thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Thanks so much for um, holding the space to um, have us talk about something that is really, yeah, a labor of love, as Moses said, it really is. Yeah, I feel very much the same. Thanks so much, Brad. This felt like such an important conversation for me to be part of personally. And I hope that listening in, you were able to sink into the challenges of underrepresentation that are experienced by students in our classroom and beyond, and that you could also hear the joys and successes that emerge from using this curriculum. I do hope you check out the website for the underrepresentation curriculum. You can go to underrep.com or find links to the website and related articles in the show notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating. You just need to go to Shows on your app, select Physics Alive, scroll down past the recent episodes, and click Tap to Rate. This will instantly ensure an equitable education system for everyone. Uh, if only. But truthfully, it will help more educators find this episode. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been encouraged that there are resources to help us get involved. Today's action step, share this episode with a colleague, and then follow up with them for a conversation 
about how you could take some small steps together. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever strive to make science more accessible to all of our students. And be well.